This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Stanislav Grof. For more than half a century, Stan has been a pioneer in the research of non-ordinary states of consciousness. He's the author of many books, including Realms of the Human Unconscious, Beyond the Brain, and most recently, Holotropic Breathwork, a new approach to self-exploration and therapy. With Sounds True, Stan has created the book When the Impossible Happens, Adventures in Non-Ordinary Realities, and the audio learning program, The Transpersonal Vision. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Stan and I spoke about the lessons that can be learned from non-ordinary states. The idea of consciousness, independent of the brain, as well as the uses and goals of holotropic breathwork. Here's my conversation with pioneer Stan Groff. I'd love to begin, Stan, by giving our listeners a bit of background and a framework for your work and your teaching. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about your early work and specifically how you became so interested in non-ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, My original interest in in psychiatry uh, came from uh, reading Freud. Uh, just at a time when I was actually committing to a completely different uh, profession, I wanted to uh, work in animated movies. And a friend of mine gave me introductory lectures to psychoanalysis, and I started reading it in the evening and couldn't stop. I read through the night, and within a few days I decided this is what I want to be. I want to be a psychoanalyst. So I enrolled in the medical school instead, and then... Uh, as I was getting deeper, uh, deeper, sort of involved with Freudian analysis, I became increasingly uh, disappointed with it. Initially, it was not uh, the theory; it was more uh, the practical uh, inefficacy. You know that it takes uh, years, uh, and even after years, the results don't seem to be. Uh, uh, kind of breathtaking, and so I was in a state, uh, kind of a crisis, where I started regretting that I chose uh, psychiatry and psychoanalysis, and started kind of nostalgically thinking back on the um, animated uh, movies. And just at that time, we got a supply of uh, LSD from from Sandoz with a letter saying that this was a a very interesting new investigational substance that um, was discovered or the the psychoactive uh, effects were discovered by Dr. Hoffman when he um, accidentally intoxicated himself. And it described a kind of a pilot study that Dr. Stoll did with the son of uh, Dr. Hoffman's boss in Zurich, with a group of psychiatric patients and a group of uh, quote-unquote normal volunteers. And uh, they 
said they felt that this would be something interesting for psychiatrists, for psychologists, and would be would we want to do some experiments and let them know if there was any legitimate use for it. And they gave um, a couple of tips. One was that they felt that maybe this could be used as a kind of a model psychosis or experimental psychosis where we could give it to, um, you know, again, quote-unquote, normal people, do all kinds of tests before, during, and after, and get some insights what might be happening in uh, people who have um, spontaneous episodes of these non-ordinary states. And then there was a second tip, which kind of became my destiny or karma, whatever you want to call it. They suggested that maybe this could be used as a kind of uh, unconventional uh, training tool for psychiatrists or psychologists, that this would give us a chance to spend a few hours in the world that seems to be similar to the world where our patients live. And, uh, you know, I was experiencing this, this real disappointment with psychiatry, and this looked like a, an exciting new possibility, so I became one of the early volunteers, and and I had a powerful, powerful transforming experience that, uh, uh, you know, created a kind of a lifetime interest in these non-ordinary states. So it became my passion, profession, uh, vocation. Can you give us an idea how many journeys did you go on where you were accompanying people as part of your research? Well, I have done, uh, you know, over the half a century, uh, over 4,000 sessions with others. And, uh, of course, I I was also uh, experimenting myself with all the substances that we were using with with our patients and, and clients. And I know this is a, a big question, but would you could you say that there were certain themes or the most important insights that you received from these four thousand sessions plus your own? I mean certain like the, the top level highlights that have informed your work. Well, I think the major thing that happened was um, I was coming into this uh, experimentation with a completely atheistic background. Uh, you know, my my uh, parents met in a small Czech town, and uh, when they wanted to get married, there was a problem because my father's family didn't have any church affiliation, and my mother's family was strictly Catholic, and uh, the local church refused to marry them until they got a major financial <laughs> contribution from my grandparents, from my mother's side. And so my parents got so disenchanted with uh, anything related to religion that they didn't commit me or my brother to to um, any religion. And they said, uh, you know, you should uh, basically make your choice when you come of age. And so from this kind of... Uh, atheistic background, I went to medical school uh, at a time when we had a Marxist regime, so this was not something that was cultivating, you know, spiritual awareness. So the major thing that happened for me was to to open me to uh, the mystical worldview, to to spirituality, which is certainly uh, it's something that I, I had not expected. And then there were many, many, of course, specific uh, insights. You know, the first one was uh, 
that <coughs> the sessions wouldn't take us, uh, by that I mean myself and my clients, just to uh, the part of the psyche described on psycho in psychoanalysis, which is basically postnatal biography and the, the Freudian individual unconscious. But sooner or later, uh, the sessions started uh, taking us into a realm which I now call perinatal. And so this was a major discovery that there is a powerful a record, a powerful imprint in the psyche of the whole birth process with all the emotions, with all the physical feelings, and that that, that uh, is like a reservoir of, of difficult emotions that uh, plays a very important role in uh, the development of different forms of emotional and psychosomatic disorders. And then going back there and reliving that and processing those emotions and releasing those energies the major major uh, therapeutic mechanism and so i had to struggle with this because in my uh, my medical training uh, there was no way uh, you could relive birth the idea was that uh, you know the, the cortex the cerebral cortex of the newborn is not uh, finished is not myelinized as it is called and that there cannot be any memory and that uh, uh, the newborn is unconscious and uh, the experience is not recorded anywhere. So this took me a while to adjust to and, and realize that somehow, you know, current psychiatry and, and the brain research had it wrong. Uh, but even before I got sort of uh, somehow familiar and comfortable with this perinatal level, it started opening into a vast new realm, which we now call transpersonal, which means uh, there were experiences of um, going back into previous centuries in other countries, sometimes with a sense of uh, personal remembering. And then we were in the realm of reincarnation, karma. You know, people were having experiences that they believed to be memories from previous lifetimes and can finding connection to present lifetime and uh, healing in uh, this process of many emotional and psychosomatic uh, problems. Then the other thing that happened, uh, the experiences moved from human consciousness into the animal realm and there were um, very, very authentic identifications with various uh, other living uh, or organisms, life forms, from primates all the way down to unicellular organisms. So again, this was a major, major, you know, as you can imagine, shocking uh, discovery. And the experiences sometimes went into the botanical realms. I remember experiences, very convincing identification with a sequoia tree, for example, or in one of my sessions I became a carnivorous uh, uh, plant uh, digesting uh, <laughs> fly, you know, with experiences that I couldn't conjure up in my everyday consciousness. It certainly wasn't coming from something I've read or or uh, experienced in the movies and so on. And then yet another major, major experience uh, or experiential realm, which was the Jungian uh, archetypal unconscious you know, coming into the realm of uh, mythological beings, deities, demonic presences, uh, kind of uh, 
abodes of the beyond, you know, paradises, hells, heavens, and so on. Um, and finally, experiences of, of oneness with the divine, or experiences of the of the supracosmic, metacosmic void, uh, the kind of experiences that uh, you never, never heard uh, in psychiatry or psychology, except maybe in some pathological context, is something that psychotic uh, patients experience. Uh, but uh, experiences that were uh, described in detail in uh, what uh, Aldous Huxley called uh, perennial philosophy, you know, the different uh, Eastern philosophy and, and, and mystical uh, systems of the world. So it would be difficult to pin down one particular experience, but certainly the transformation from an atheist to somebody who was uh, like a mystic uh, and then this uh, discovery of the vastness of of the psyche, you know, those were the those were the major major surprises for me. Well, I mean, Stan, listening to you, I, it's it's so huge what you're reporting, and just to help me in terms of my own history and knowledge of the development of psychiatry in the West. So when you started. Was the perinatal and transpersonal dimension just not considered part of the dialogue? It certainly was not part of the dialogue in uh, traditional academic uh, psychiatry and psychology. But these kinds of ideas appeared in uh, the you know very stormy and kind of complex history of psychoanalysis. Uh, Freud uh, surrounded himself by very talented uh, people. Many of them developed uh, you know, kind of a, um, variations of psychoanalysis uh, that went beyond Freud. So there was, for example, Otto Rank, who, without telling Freud, uh, worked on a book called The Trauma of Birth and uh, gave it actually to Freud uh, for his birthday, uh, creating a, a, an emotional shock in Freud that, according to Ernest Jones, the biographer of Freud, took Freud uh, four months to recover from. Uh, so that was uh, that was something that emerged uh, uh, in psychoanalysis, but was not certainly embraced by the whole uh, psychoanalytic community, only by a fraction of analysts. And uh, it also ranks ideas was a little about the birth was uh, was. Uh, different from uh, the way it emerged from psychedelic research or the holotropic breathwork that we are doing now. And then, of course, there was uh, Carl Gustav Jung, who came up with the idea that we don't have just uh, the individual unconscious, but we have a collective unconscious uh, where the entire history uh, of humanity is recorded, and also the cultural history, the cultural inheritance, uh, experiences of... uh, um of different cultures, even cultures that we that we um, have not studied or that we don't have any intellectual knowledge. There was of course another you know another renegade and that was Wilhelm Reich who um, pointed out that um, what we are dealing with in um, emotional psychosomatic disorders, are not just uh, memories of traumatic uh, situations of various kinds, but that uh, we carry very, very powerful blockages, what he called character armor, 
that he saw as kind of jammed uh, sexual energy uh, due to the fact that we uh, humans in, in modernity don't have free and full uh, sexual life. So again, this is something that emerged in psychedelic uh, work, you know, the awareness of how many pent-up uh, bioenergies we carry uh, in our body. Now, you mentioned something very interesting to me when you were talking about how traditional psychiatry viewed memories from the birth experience, that we don't have the mental capacity, I guess you said, because of certain myelin that's formed in our brain to have these memories, and that this caused a conundrum for you, how you could understand what you were experiencing both in yourself and through the psychedelic research, and then later, and and we'll talk about this in a bit, the therapy you developed, holotropic breathwork therapy, where people are reliving these birth memories. So how do you explain our ability to access birth memories in non-ordinary states, given that scientific perspective about how the brain forms? Well, you know, there's no problem in this regard with perinatal experiences because there is a brain, there is a highly developed uh, part of the nervous system in the in the newborn, and uh, it's actually quite surprising and shocking that uh, that the traditional psychiatrists don't see it. Uh, because we know that you don't need a cortex uh, uh, to have memories. I mean, there are um, organisms without a cortex, without a brain that have memories. Memory is a function of, of living matter. You know, a number of years ago, um, Eric Kandel got a Nobel Prize uh, for studying memory mechanisms in a sea slug called Aplesia. So a sea slug has memory, but the newborn cannot remember, you know, hours of a potentially life-threatening situation. Then the other uh, paradox here is that uh, the whole psychiatric community agrees that the experiences immediately following birth, which is nursing, which is the exchange between the fetus and the uh, mother or the newborn and the mother, is all important. Uh, even uh, pediatricians uh, and obstetricians uh, talk about bonding, the exchange of looks between the mother and the child that can influence the whole future relationship. And we have now extensive fetal research showing the sensitivity of the fetus already in the womb. For example, if you're playing Vivaldi uh, to pregnant mothers and then you play it again in the nursery, uh, you know, the children would uh, be more relaxed, they would sleep better, they would gain more weight and so on. And, you know, there are other other indications of the sensitivity of the fetus. So uh, the only way I can understand this amazing, amazing logical gap, which you see here, is that it's a psychological impression, that the, the experienced memory is so frightening that we use our intellect to explain it away. You know, these things couldn't have been important because my cortex was not myelinized. But the, the idea that... Uh, a discipline that's so proud of its logic, you know, it's a rigid uh, sort of uh, uh, logical uh, scientific thinking can um, come up with that kind of inconsistency by attributing uh, the ability of very refined uh, memory to the nursing newborn, but at the same time believes that there was no way of recording something that could be, you know, 15, 30, 50 
hours, several days of a life-threatening situation. It's just hard to hard to believe. So you get into much more problems when you go further because you can remember early embryonic development. Um, you can certainly experience conception on a cellular level of awareness, and then you can go beyond and have ancestral memories and uh, you know experiences from the collective unconscious where it becomes increasingly difficult to find any material substrate. So we have now a concept of memory without a material substrate. And, uh, you know, some of the things that would fit here would be, for example, um, Rupert Sheldrake's idea of the morphogenetic fields, or uh, the other one would be um, uh, the concept of... um, so-called psi field or akashic field that Erwin Laszlo described. Um, He really scientifically formulated uh, the concept of a sub-quantum field where everything that has ever happened in the universe remains uh, holographically recorded and becomes available to all of us under certain special, special circumstances. So uh, consciousness research is now beyond the idea that memory has to have some kind of a material substrate, whether it's the brain or even the even the DNA. Well, well let's it's talk a, about that a moment, because it seems like that's a pretty controversial point, consciousness without a material substrate. Oh, so definitely controversial in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of um, current academic circles. But we have, for example, enormous number of observations from thanatology showing that consciousness can operate independently of the brain. You know, people who have uh, a near-death experience, not just cardiac, uh, their car- you know, their uh, heart stops, but also uh, their brain waves are, are flattened. Uh, so that it's, a, it's a cardiac death and, and brain death. And uh, when they are being resuscitated, uh, the consciousness operates outside of the body with a complete um, sensory uh, access to the environment, not just in the room where it is happening, but can travel to other parts of the building, can experience something uh, hundreds or thousands miles away. And if there's an open-minded researcher who goes and checks these things, he finds out that these things are happening, that they can be consensually validated and Ken Rink and uh, uh, Valerino, for example, <clears throat> showed that uh, this can happen to people who are congenitally blind who, for organic reasons who had never seen anything in their life. And if they are in a near-death situation, they can see and what they see can be consensually validated. So they talk about um, veridical out-of-body experiences. So, you know, we have various observations showing that uh, that uh, consciousness is not a product of the brain, that consciousness really can operate independently. So this is such an important point to emphasize. What does this tell you about what you think, imagine, suppose will happen when you die? Well, you know, we can we can uh, do a little more than fantasize about it, uh, because we have these reports of people who came quite close to death. You know, we we don't have uh, 
report some people who actually died, completed the process. We find, you know, there are reports from from uh, Tibetan literature and so on. But I have had in my psychedelic sessions uh, repeatedly experiences where I believe that I already died, that I was in the realm which was post-mortem uh, realm, the Bardo realm, and I've seen many, many other people describe that. Uh, we had uh, patients um, who were dying of cancer, and we were doing psychedelic research with them, and um, we had instances where they had the ex- experiences of death rebirth and having the sense of transcending death. And then as cancer uh, continued, they actually had a real near-death experience. Like one of my uh, patients is described in the book, When the Impossible Happened, and his uh, ureter was uh, obstructed by the metastasis, and uh, they operated on him, and he had a, a cardiac arrest. And then uh, when he came back, he told us, I'm, I'm glad that I had these uh, sessions with you because the territory was not new to me. So he was comparing, actually, uh, his experiences from psychedelic sessions with a real near-death experience. Uh, so we have many indications uh, suggesting that what's going to be happening at the time of death is going to be uh, quite similar to what uh, we have experienced in psychedelic sessions, but of course we'll never know for sure. I mean, <laughs> we'll uh, get the final answer when, you know, we'll be actually dying. Mm-hmm. So just to make sure everyone's tracking with us, when you talk about consciousness without a substrate, what you mean by a substrate is some material receiver? Yeah, something that's that's material, like the brain or the or the DNA. And uh, it would be uh, more of something like a field. So, so uh, Rupert Sheldrake is talking about a morphogenetic field, or uh, Erwin Laszlo is talking about the uh, Akashic field or the PSI field, which would be a subquantum uh, field where where everything that has ever happened would be would be recorded. Or you know maybe the field of consciousness uh, can can uh, retain information. The field of consciousness itself. We have to move away from the idea that consciousness is actually produced by the brain. You know we have just many many indications uh, that that's not the case. Um, what we have we have enormous number of observations showing that there are systematic correlations between the anatomy, physiology, biochemistry of the brain, and states of consciousness. But we have absolutely no proof that uh, the brain generates uh, consciousness. This is, again, another kind of a logical jump that uh, um, has happened in the in the um, academic thinking. Um, you know, it would be tantamount to... Uh, saying that because there is a systematic relationship between the components in the in the uh, television set and their functioning, and the quality of the of the picture and the sound that you get, is a proof that the program is generated in the in the box. It of course, leaves the possibility that uh, the 
television set mediates the program but doesn't generate it. And in the same way that the brain mediates consciousness but does not really create it. Mm -hmm. So is that your understanding of the relationship between consciousness and the brain, that the brain's a mediator? Well, what what, uh, I believe is that we have a lot of evidence that consciousness is not produced by the brain. It's easier for me now to imagine uh, the way the Hindus do that what we are experiencing as the material world is really a virtual reality. You know, they talk about Maya, they talk about Lila, about the divine play. So I can imagine consciousness generating the experience of the material world rather than uh, being able to believe that something like matter, which in our understanding is, is inert, inert, sort of blind, reactive, can generate something like consciousness. I mean, the gap is so phenomenal uh, that it's hard to imagine. And nobody has ever tried to explain how possibly uh, matter could create consciousness. It's a basic metaphysical assumption which um, uh, sort of reflects uh, this belief that uh, the, uh, the world is material and therefore consciousness has to be a derivative but there is this, you know, this other extreme that the Hindus have that uh, that um, all we are dealing with uh, with um, is virtual reality. That that worlds can be created by orchestration of experiences, and those people who have had psychedelic experiences or even spontaneous experiences or experiences in holotropic breathwork. Uh, they know that consciousness can create worlds very, very believable, occasionally even more believable than than uh, this one. And there's, of course, also the possibility of the of the parallelism that uh, you know both consciousness and matter are real and that they are sort of uh, related in a very interesting way. Philosophically, you have all three of those possibilities: the world is material and matter generates consciousness, or the the nature of the universe is uh, absolute consciousness that has the capacity of creating uh, worlds by orchestrating experiences, and then the parallel existence of, uh, of matter and consciousness. Well, it's clear that you don't think the first option is the way things are, but between the second and the third, are you clear what your view is? Yeah, I think I would side with the with the Eastern philosophies. Uh, you know, if I take all the experiences I have had over the years and everything I have seen um, in terms of these experiences and things happening around them, like, like amazing synchronicities and so on, I would, you know, I would certainly uh, be more inclined to give priority to consciousness. You know, I, I read years ago uh, a book um, that I saw in the bookstore, uh, and it was Francis Crick, called The Astonishing Hypothesis. Francis Crick was the, uh, you know, um, co-discoverer of uh, the DNA structure. And uh, it was called The Astonishing Hypothesis, uh, Nobel Prize winning scientist uh, explains consciousness. So I said, you know, this is a book I have to read. So I bought the book and I started reading it. 
And it began uh, with uh, a kind of a statement, you know, all your, your joys, all your sorrows, all your ideas, all your visions. It's nothing else but uh, play of uh, the activity of the neurons in your brain. This was the astonishing hypothesis. And then Crick says, well, let's simplify it. Let's look at what happens when you observe something. And then he says, you know, when you look at something, uh, light is reflected from it. It creates uh, electric changes, uh, chemical changes in your retina that creates a neuronal impulse, more electric changes, more biochemical changes. And then finally, this impulse ends up in the suboccipital cortex. Um, again, electric potentials and biochemical changes. And he gives pages and pages of experiments proving that, that this is the case. And then he leaves it in the suboccipital cortex as electric potentials and biochemical changes, as if that explained the problem. But it's actually where the problem begins. You know, what is it that can create out of uh, these biochemical and uh, electric changes a reasonable facsimile of what's out there in colors and sort of project it into into uh, the three-dimensional space. You know, that's a that's a f- extremely profound philosophical problem that Immanuel Kant uh, pointed to. You know, how do we know that what is there it was really correctly reflected in our brain? We we only know how the world appears to us, uh, but not what things really what things really are. And there's no way of getting uh, sort of beyond that uh, kind of a problem. So the Hindus have a whole other idea that you see exactly what you're supposed to see, but uh, the things that you see are not there in the way you you perceive them. In the same way as in the movies, you see, uh, you see exactly what you are expected to see, but those things... uh, are not what you what you uh, perceive them as being the horses the trees the the people it's just a play of uh, play of energy that you interpret in a certain way now stan as we're talking today you're in your 80s and you mentioned that it was some of the experiences in your personal life some of the things that were really mind bending mind expanding mind melting whatever word you want to use that convinced you of the primacy of consciousness. And I'm wondering if you can share, you know, one or two examples of events that really shifted you. Your experience was just undeniable and it created some kind of shift in you. Again, I don't I don't think it was, you know, uh, one or two or three experiences. It's more the the number of those things uh, that happened uh I have several several of them in the book again. Uh, when the impossible happens, for example, having a psychedelic session in the in a motel near the Ayers Rock, Uluru, you know, the cosmic mountain of the Aborigines in the middle of the of the uh, Australian desert, and uh, not really knowing the uh, Aboriginal mythology, and that experience took me into this. Uh, um, realm of what they call dreaming, encountering the uh, the um, mythic figures of that 
of that um, aborigine uh, or aboriginal uh, mythology and going through a process of uh, being born by the great mother kangaroo and so on. And then the next day we um, bought a little booklet in the in uh, the motel and took a car and drove around the um, drove around the mountain and uh, they were sort of descriptions of many of the things that I experienced uh, the night night before uh, you know through my through my inner experience were validated by this uh, by this guide that we were we were reading uh, so just you know one of many many experiences uh, some amazing uh, synchronicities happening sort of around these uh, states. The phenomenon of synchronicity is something that was a major turning point in uh, Carl Gustav Jung's uh, work also, because he initially saw the saw the archetypes as being sort of uh, hardwired in the brain. And when he discovered synchronicity, the fact that what appears to be the material of what we call objective reality can enter in this kind of a playful interaction with our psyche that we can have a dream or a, a vision and then the material reality sort of uh, 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 you know presents it in in 3d um, it's quite quite remarkable. I have in the book this uh, story that Joseph Campbell tells when he was uh, writing uh, uh, the first uh, volume of what was supposed to be a six-volume uh, encyclopedia of mythology, and he was living at the time on uh, the 14th floor of a high-rise building in Lower Manhattan. And in his study, there were f- uh, two sets of windows, one overlooking. Sixth Avenue, you know, not very interesting. The other one overlooking Hudson River, very beautiful view. So these two windows were always open, and the other two windows, they opened only very rarely for for cleaning. And he was working on the um, Kalahari Bushman mythology, where the heroic figure is the praying mantis. So he was surrounded by these pictures and these, these articles and uh, Lawrence Van Der Post biography where he talks about his uh, um, his uh, Bushman nanny interacting with a praying mantis and suddenly he had this irresistible impulse to to get up and open one of the windows that he had, that they had never uh, you know regularly opened and he looked out and automatically turned his head to the side and there on the 14th floor, of this high-rise building was a big specimen of praying mantis climbing up and sort of turned his, her um, head towards him, gave him a look, and just continued to climb up the building. So you see, those uh, those kinds of things uh, are quite, quite remarkable. The, the probability that something like this happens in chance is really, or the improbability is really an astronomical so besides the experiences that were more like in the category of the Uluru experience, I had also lots of these uh, synchronistic connections with my experiences. So I think that lots of people, and I imagine lots of people listening, have had 
experiences of synchronicity that are just remarkable and, as you say, just completely implausible. But yet, wow, this happened. The question then is, is how do we interpret these and make meaningful sense of what's actually happening in our lives from these experiences of synchronicity? So can you help us there? What does synchronicity point to, in your view? Well, first of all, they point uh, to the fact that the, the universe is something completely different from what it's described uh, uh, in, uh, like in um, monistic, materialistic science. You see that it brings this, this kind of uh, idea of a universe that is, uh, uh, that is uh, organic, that is interconnected, that is alive, that's you know, permeated by, by superior uh, intelligence, and that uh, uh, events in the universe are orchestrated in an intelligent uh, way. They don't just, uh, they don't just uh, happen. So it's a radical, you know, it's a radical uh, change in our understanding of the nature of reality from uh, the typical sort of uh, Western view that we have in industrial societies, where it's a simply uh, material world in which only only humans are really fully fully conscious uh, to a universe that's. Uh, uh, created by superior intelligence and that has a, a um, kind of a master blueprint behind it. You know, Rick Tarnas brought uh, like a whole other uh, perspective on this by 30 years of studying history and showing the correlations between events in the world and and planetary transits. You know, it shows uh, uh, an image of, uh, of the universe in which... Uh, what is happening here on uh, the the material level is um, formed and informed by uh, happenings in the archetypal level, which is normally invisible. And the interaction in the archetypal level is systematically correlated with the planetary movements and the angular relationships that the planets are are making. So you can infer from uh, the situation in... uh, um, the world of uh, the stars, what is happening in the archetypal world and what kind of energies you would expect here. Um, so Rick wrote this book called uh, Cosmos and Psyche, uh, and if you read that, it's, uh, you know, it's quite, quite amazing. So there you don't have just a sort of individual isolated synchronicities, but showing a synchronistic, you know, interconnection uh, of all of uh, all of re- reality, so that you can take part of it, which is the movements of the planets, and you can infer uh, what would be happening in the other realms. Mm-hmm. It's important to say that uh, the, in this kind of understanding, the, the stars don't cause anything; they just indicate what is happening in the way um, in which our watch or our clock does not create time, but it's just showing us what time it is. Mm-hmm. Now, we started our conversation, Stan, talking about your research uh, with people undergoing LSD experiences, and you've mentioned that you've developed a method, holotropic breathwork, which is one that allows people to access these expanded states of consciousness without 
drugs or, or LSD or any other, ingesting anything. And just to talk a little bit about that, what's your understanding of what LSD does to our capacity to have experience? And then is that really something that can be mimicked in a non-drug approach? Well, you know, all those years working with um, LSD, um, I uh, knew that uh, what we were experiencing uh, were not really LSD experiences, that that LSD was like a powerful catalyst that sort of makes available the contents from, from really deep uh, levels of the psyche that are normally not accessible to to exploration, so I saw it as something like a telescope or a, or a microscope. You know, the microscope doesn't create the uh, micro world; it just makes it available for observation. The telescope doesn't create new galaxies; it just uh, we, we presume they are there, and and uh, we wouldn't see them without the telescope. Uh, yet there was always this feeling, you know, there is this incredibly powerful substance. Maybe it somehow sort of participates in it. And so it was quite amazing when uh, Christina and I were in Esalen, where um, Esalen Institute on uh, in Big Sur, where we did not have the permission to use uh, uh, psychedelics, and we developed this method of holotropic breathwork where you just use faster breathing, powerful evocative music, and a certain kind of bodywork, that we saw essentially the same spectrum of experiences that we used to see in psychedelic sessions. People reliving things from infancy, childhood, uh, reliving birth, going to prenatal states, identifying with animals, with plants, going into the realm of archetypal beings, having past life experiences, having... uh, experiences of uh, oneness with God or oneness with nature, oneness with the universe, and so on. And then when we saw uh, that these experiences can be useful and healing and transformative when they are induced by psychedelics or the breathwork, we started applying the same strategy to experiences that people had spontaneously and realized that there is a significant subgroup of uh, states which are currently diagnosed as psychotic, which means manifestations of mental disease, that are actually kind of crisis of spiritual opening, where the psyche opens on a deep level in a, in a um, spontaneous way for unknown reasons. And if we do uh, not uh, suppress it the way it's routinely done, but we encourage people to go into the experience and we work with them, it turns out to be equally uh, transformative and uh, healing and even evolutionary as those experiences which are induced by breathwork or uh, psychedelic uh, substances. And you can actually use the same extended cartography for all those three, uh, three situations. So this is. I think it's important to to say that we are not um, studying, you know, psychedelic substances or uh, something that uh, faster breathing induces. We are studying the psyche per se, only psyche that's infinitely larger than uh, uh, the academic psychiatry and psychology would describe it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because this is something I've just 
never studied or understood, but what does a psychedelic substance do that opens us to what's naturally there? And then how is that possibly mimicked by breathwork and music? Well, there, you, you know, there are theories. There is no, no uh, unanimity. There is no agreement exactly about the, the biochemical mechanism that, uh, that is happening. Uh, but uh, what you can say in very general sense is that it changes the relationship between consciousness and the unconscious. Uh, normally, sort of, we carry uh, materials in our uh, unconscious on different levels, uh, which have very strong emotional charge, and they have a tendency to to emerge into consciousness. Um, and then there is a system that we call the psychological defenses that kind of holding it down. This, you know, one of the important discoveries of, uh, of Freud was about this dynamics uh, between the unconscious psyche and, and uh, uh, the conscious uh, psyche. And, he, you know, he described how uh, the unconscious can uh, sort of break through, not just in... Uh, uh, symptoms of, of psychoneurosis, but in, for example, in slips of the tongue or in in jokes and so on. Uh, and then, uh, then also in the form of dreams, when the when the psychological defenses go down, down the sensor, as uh, Freud called it, goes down, then the unconscious becomes more available. So psychedelics and the breathing do something similar only in a much more powerful way than an uh, ordinary dream would do unless they are some really powerful kind of a you know nightmare type of dreams so we carry these uh, these contents in our psyche um, that have strong emotional charge some of them very uh, painful which were uh, traumatic experiences some of them that were very very joyful so, for example, around birth, you find the prenatal experience, if it was a good womb, would be a very ecstatic experience. The postnatal experience, again, if there was good mothering available, would be very ecstatic. But the, the actual passage through the birth canal would be very, uh, very painful. So if these, these memories are strongly emotionally charged, change the relationship if you change the relationship between uh, consciousness and the unconscious, then uh, this unconscious material would surface and become available for processing. It seems that one of the risks, at least uh, this would be my view, in a psychedelic approach is that someone could be overwhelmed by what their defenses have been keeping at bay. Do you find that with holotropic breathwork, or does it seem that holotropic breath work, there's sort of the person's a little bit more in charge of how much material from their unconscious is released. And maybe you don't even think that this risk of overwhelm from psychedelics is a risk. I'm curious. You know, much depends not just on the method that you're using, but on what we call set and setting. For example, the ratio between the risk and uh, benefit in psychedelic sessions is critically determined as to you know, who does it, uh, for what purposes, uh, um, in what kind of circumstances, physical and, and human circumstances, 
uh, it makes a big difference uh, what the set and the setting is. And you have you have extremely broad range there uh, in which psychedelics have been used from uh, a therapeutic situation, uh, you know, or the use for um, artistic purposes or, or scientific insight, all the way to attempts to to use it. Uh, as a chemical weapon or as a as a method of discrediting foreign diplomats or or you know military leaders uh, even under the best of circumstances it will not be absolutely safe a significant factor also is the personality of of uh, the person who takes it you know some people are so close to a breakdown that it could happen tomorrow or a week from now spontaneously and uh, the psychedelics can be just the last straw. And if it's under very bad circumstances, uh, then it could really, you know, lead to a, to a, a breakdown. And the worst thing is if in this situation now people get tranquilizers if in the middle of a bad trip that sort of freezes it in the bad place, and then the person gets... Uh, maintenance dosages to make sure that uh, the gestalt will never complete itself. So uh, those are all factors that contribute to the fact that people uh, can be damaged by uh, psychedelics. Now, in the breathwork, uh, you have, uh, you start in a safe situation. You know, everybody has a, has a partner. We work in diets and then we have uh, trained facilitators for each about eight or ten people, and then you know usually myself and Tev Sparks, who's a kind of senior staff members, are there for the whole group. And people are asked to do this whole thing with their eyes closed, which already makes it safer because you're really fully aware of what is coming up and. Uh, you have the best uh, uh, opportunity to to work with it. Now, if people take it walking around, uh, you know, or in a rave in an open uh, open situation where uh, they don't really pay any attention, that their uh, psychological defenses go down, but they don't pay attention to the material that's coming up. Those are situations that are, you know, very, very uh, conducive to, to bad results. But in the breathwork, we we start and end in, in a completely uh, introjected kind of a situation where people have uh, their eyes closed or even even uh, eye shades, and they have this very, very complex sort of human support system. And if something gets unresolved, we have a certain kind of a body work and emotional work that can help the integration. I know you've now just published a new book on holotropic breathwork with SUNY Press, uh, Holotropic Breathwork, A New Approach to Self-Exploration and Therapy. And I'm curious what your vision is for holotropic breathwork in the world over the next decade or two. What would you love to see happen? Well, we feel that it's a it's a very powerful way uh, of uh, self exploration and and therapy uh, that has a much better chance to to influence somehow what's happening in the culture than uh, verbal therapy, you know, conducted on a one to one basis. Um, 
and there is an additional element in the, in the breathwork. Then when people um, function as what we call sitters, you know, they alternate in these roles, that many of them get so interested in this that they actually uh, get into the training. So there's almost like a chain reaction there. So, you know, we feel that it could really um, influence quite a few, uh, quite a few people if uh, that method becomes uh, becomes uh, popular. And the most exciting thing that we have seen is that besides the emotional and psychosomatic healing that happens, that in people who do this uh, systematically and responsibly, they actually experience a, a profound uh, transformation of their worldview. So, for example, uh, their level of aggression is lowered because they, you know, work through a lot of their aggression in connection with the material that is uh, that is emerging. They develop a sense of, of uh, compassion, of uh, uh, sense of belonging. Uh, uh, you don't have to teach people ecology when they have transpersonal experiences of oneness with nature and with the. You know, with the, you know other species and with other people, uh, they uh, realize that sense of underlying unity in nature, and uh, they they approach the ecological problems in a completely different way. They they realize that we are all interconnected with uh, um, nature, and that uh, we cannot uh, damage nature without simultaneously damaging uh, ourselves. They also start uh, developing a deep tolerance in terms of uh, gender, uh, race, uh, culture, you know, ideology, uh, religious differences. They start seeing these differences uh, more as interesting as indications of the infinite creativity of the cosmic uh, creative principle rather than something that's... Uh, that you would like to uh, eliminate. Um, they develop spirituality, which which is uh, non-denominational, which kind of transcends the kind of the you know the fundamentalist uh, sort of adherence to a particular organized religion, which tends to unite a certain group of people who are relating to the same kind of images of the divine or concept of the divine, but at the same time divide the the world uh, because it sets that group against other groups. You know, we are Christians, you are pagans, we are Muslims, you are uh, Christians or Muslims, we are Hindus, you are Sikhs, and so on. Differences that are enough to end up in, uh, in bloodshed are even small differences within the same uh, uh, same faith, like uh, the Protestants and the, and the Catholics or the Shiites and the Sunnis, you know, the differences are enough for for killing the other group. So this is not the kind of religion that we need in the world. But people who do some systematic inner work with these uh, what I call holotropic states, then develop uh, they develop a spirituality that's universal, that's sort of all-encompassing. Uh, and uh, that I find very, very hopeful. You know, I can see a kind of a future religion where you would offer people. First of all, you would you would value spirituality as a as a very important dimension 
in human life an important part of uh, existence, you would give people some means through which they can have personal experiences. You would provide support for them, but you would have absolutely no investment whether the experiences would be using sort of um, you know Buddhist imagery or Hindu imagery or uh, if they would go in the direction of uh, ancient Egypt or uh, Australian Aborigines. Uh, you would sort of honor it, you know, as just different uh, manifestation of uh, one source which transcends them all. And then I think that kind of uh, spirituality, you know, might be probably the only way out of this crisis in which we are now, when the world is so profoundly, so painfully divided in many different ways. Now, this term, I realize we didn't define it, holotropic, this is uh, not exactly the same as non-ordinary states of consciousness. You coined the term holotropic? Yes, I did. You know, um, I became interested in a, a significant subgroup of uh, of uh, non-ordinary states, uh, which are healing, which are transformative, even evolutionary, and which have uh, what we can call heuristic potential, H-E-U-R, which is uh, that we can learn new things about consciousness, about psyche, and even about the nature of reality. So those are the experiences that, for example, shamans experience during their initiatory crisis or that they induce in their clients or experiences that the initiates have in the rites of passage of different native cultures or the experiences that the initiates had in the ancient death rebirth mysteries, uh, the experiences of the, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Christian mystics, the, uh, the Taoists, the Kabbalists, and so on. And I became so, uh, again, astounded that psychiatry does not have a name for this uh, important subcategory. We have just that one term, altered states, which describes you know everything from... Uh, uh, delirium tremens or, or hallucinations during typhoid fever uh, to a true mystical experience. And uh, we don't have a distinction, a spiritual mystical experience and a psychotic experience. So every non-ordinary state would be seen as pathological and would be called altered. You know, I don't like that term for the for this important subgroup, you know. So uh, and even that term non-ordinary seemed too broad because it would include many uh, states uh, which are different from ordinary consciousness but don't have those kind of positive qualities that I described. So I started calling them holotropic. Holos means whole and trepane means moving toward or in a direction of something like in uh, the term uh, heliotropism. The plant has the property to always follow the sun or orient itself towards the sun. So it means uh, moving toward wholeness, which of course suggests something that would surprise an, you know, an average person in an industrial society, which is that we somehow are not whole the way we experience ourselves in our um, everyday life. So to to explain that, I usually uh, refer to the kind of a Hindu uh, shorthand. Uh, in uh, the Hindu religion, they would tell you, you are not Nama Rupa, you are not name and form, you are not body ego. You carry within yourself a kind of a divine core or divine spark, and they give you methods 
in which you can get uh, empirical experiential validation of that. You can actually experience identification with that core and call it Atman. And if you experience it, you realize that that energy, that state of consciousness is identical with the energy or the state of consciousness of uh, the creative principle itself, uh, Brahman. Uh, so these holotropic states uh, take us from our ordinary uh, identity, the body ego, all the way to uh, this experience with the with the cosmic source. Sometimes in small steps, sometimes in major jumps, major major breakthroughs. So that's that's the meaning of the term holotropic. We can kind of reclaim, uh, you know, our our cosmic status if you want. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like in this conversation we've explored a first layer of, as you mentioned, four or five decades of your work, which has really made such a contribution to our collective understanding. And uh, the final question I have for you, Stan, is here you've made such a tremendous contribution, helping bring attention to transpersonal levels of understanding the perinatal dimension of our experience. Do you feel a sense of fulfillment? Well, you know, I have <laughs> I have a sense that I have I have had very a very interesting uh life and you know the experiences themselves were kind of self uh validating. Obviously, I would love to have more time, <laughs> but I also have this uh sense that maybe there will be more time, you know, if uh, that concept of uh, reincarnation turns out to be uh, uh, true. Um, I don't have uh, any regrets, you know, uh, whether whether what we discovered will be accepted by the culture and whether it's going to be actually useful, that's, uh, that's not up to me, that's... Uh, on the circumstances and other people to to decide you know um, obviously if i you know if I could do it again, there are things that I would do differently, but uh I think that everything considered you know i've done done sort of uh, what was within my uh capacities at the time it It seems to me Stan that you're a pioneer, and it's simply a matter of time before the culture meets you. That would be my view. <laughs> well, Stan, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It was a great pleasure, and, uh, as always, to talk to you. And uh, thank you so much for having me. And as I mentioned to our listeners, I really believe that we've barely skimmed the surface. Stan Groff is the author of a new book on holotropic breathwork, a new approach to self-exploration and therapy, as well as a book from Sounds True called When the Impossible Happens, Adventures in Non-Ordinary Realities, in which Stan tells many stories from his personal life. And then also a very deep and rich six-CD series on the transpersonal vision, which covers a, a lot of the theory that we touched upon today on the healing potential of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.